just like to welcome everyone joining us for our live stream. It's one part of our service here at Chelsea Community Church with City Temple. You can be part of the whole thing via Zoom by dropping us an email, or better yet, come and see us in person at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Today, we're gonna to look at three places in the Bible. First of all, Luke chapter 22, then Acts chapter 19, and finally, Ephesians chapter two. Before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the Bible. I thank you that you speak to us through the Bible in the power of your Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would do that today. And let your spirit rest upon me that I can proclaim your word boldly and faithfully, just as you desire. We love you and we praise you, worship you, and we thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Luke chapter 22, we're going to pick up with verse 24. A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves." Then Acts chapter 19. We'll pick up in the middle of the paragraph with verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva we're doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. Well, you may have heard that phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. I've, I've heard it many times. And, uh, and I, I tell you, I, I don't know a Bible story that better expresses or explains that phrase than what we read in chapter Acts, uh, in Acts 19. Uh, it is, I think, kind of, okay, maybe a little perversely, I think it's one of the funniest stories in all of the Bible. Because here you have all this stuff that's going on. Uh, Paul is casting out demons. I mean, that's one thing that Jesus did. All the disciples did that. And so, and that wasn't unusual. You, you had a lot of exorcists. The Jews, had, the Jews had exorcists in the day. And there were seven sons of a high priest named Sceva who were known as exorcists as well. And so they thought they'd get in on the act, you know, with, with all the Christians. And so they said, uh, there was a guy who was demonized and they said to him, you know, I adjure you uh, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, you know, come out. And, uh, and the demon spoke through the man and said, well, wait, you know, I know Jesus. I recognize Paul, but who are you? And then the man, demonized man, proceeded to beat up all seven of the sons of Sceva, strip off all their clothes so that they ran naked and screaming probably from the house. Well, I, okay, I, I, it just shows my sense of humor. I love that story. I think it is so funny to me, but it is a story about something we call spiritual authority. And spiritual authority is one of the most important concepts that we have as Christians, and it's probably one of the most under-discussed or most misunderstood concepts we, had, we, we have as Christians. Now, remember last week, we were looking at what Jesus told Peter, and he said, hey, Peter, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my church, on the rock of your confession that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he goes on to say, and I'm giving you, and the you there is you all, I'm giving you all the keys of the kingdom so that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed on heaven. The keys of the kingdom represent authority. In fact, it, that, it represents authority every time. Now, if you have keys to my house, you have the authority to enter my house. If you steal my keys, you're stealing my authority. And, and that's true. It's like, you know, the little key cards, they give you authority to enter certain buildings, but they don't give you authority to enter every building. So keys are always about authority. And what Jesus is saying is that God has given the church, the ecclesia, as we talked last week, that's that Greek word for church. God has given the church the spiritual authority to administer God's kingdom. We have the keys of the kingdom. 
And we use that authority as the bride of Christ. Now here comes the bride. We have that authority. And corporately and individually, having spiritual authority is what gives us the ability to influence people, groups, organizations, and even the world around us toward the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. So spiritual authority is something that we really need to understand. In fact, it's such an important concept that we're going to spend two weeks on it to talk about it because it's really, really important that we get it because so many people do not get it. Now, to understand our spiritual authority as the church, as the ecclesia, we need to understand two more Greek words. So, you know, you you won't be Greek scholars by the end of all of this, but you'll know some important words. The first word is the word exousia, and the second word is the word dunamis. Uh, If you've ever heard of dynamite, you kind of get the idea behind dunamis. Exousia means authority. And this involves the permission or freedom to do something. If you have authority, you have permission or freedom. The word dunamis, power, involves the ability to do something. Sometimes you can have the authority to do something and not have the ability to do something. And sometimes you can have the ability to do something and not have the authority to do something. So both of those words go together. And God has designed authority and power to work together to promote the well-being of people in society. And not just spiritual authority, all authority. Authority and power go together, work together to promote the well-being of people and society, families, organizations, churches, governments, etc. For example, parents. Parents have authority in the lives of their children, and they also, until their children get kind of big and tough, they have the power to exercise a degree of control for their children. Now, God's purpose in giving parents both authority and power is so that their children will grow up to be healthy, well-developed people who can start families of their own. Or think about policing, which a lot of us in London don't want to think about these days. But if you think about policing, police have authority to do certain things, and the government also gives them power to enforce that authority But the power always has limits, right? So the police can't exercise that power in any way they want to. Otherwise, they move outside of that authority. But a police officer that doesn't have authority cannot use his power. For example, my brother-in-law, Rich, whom uh, maybe many of you will meet next next year when they visit, uh, he is bigger than I am, and he is a police officer in the United States. And I can tell you that when he comes over here to the UK, they will not allow him to bring his gun. Why? Because he doesn't have the authority to carry his gun here. So you get it. Those two things have to go together. Now, what we need to understand about this is that all authority, all legitimate authority comes from God. All 
legitimate authority comes from God and works within the boundaries that God has assigned. It comes from God and it works within those boundaries. All authority that's not from God or all authority that operates outside of its boundaries is false authority. It's false authority. Oh, I can't go to uh, the Anglican church down the street and say, hey, I'm here, I'm a pastor, and I'm going to exercise my authority here. doesn't work that way because there's boundaries. There's boundaries that have been assigned for that. And not only is all authority from God and works within the boundaries God assigns, all legitimate authority, all legitimate authority also works with the consent of the people and the groups in which the people are operating. So people and groups give consent for the exercise of authority, which is done first collectively and then individually. And how that works, we, we do this all the time in a, in a de democratic society, we vote. And so what happens, what is voting? Voting is about giving authority. In our country, voting is about giving authority to a particular party that it might enact certain laws, that it might appoint a prime minister, and that it might engage in government. And you have opposition, but the opposition cannot itself depose the opposing government, right? That would be really bad. We don't want to see that. If you want to oppose uh, or, or dispose of the other government, then you need to go back to the polls because you can only get that from the people collectively. And once the people collectively have spoken, then it is our responsibility individually to work within that authority. And if we don't want to work within that authority, then we might end up in jail, or if somebody like me would end up being kicked out of the country. And that would be a totally legitimate thing to do. So having authority must always precede the exercise of power. You got to have the authority first before you can engage in power. And this really tells us about a big problem today because people in our society and in our world are pursuing power. But they really need authority. We've got a lot of people, a lot of nations where people are pursuing power without authority. And exercising power outside legitimate authority is always abuse. 100% of the time. Exercising power outside of legitimate authority is always abuse. For example, if you've watched any television, you'll know that in order for somebody to come, the police to come search your house, they have to have a search warrant, right? A warrant is a document giving them authority to exercise power in a limited way. If somebody wants to search your property without a warrant, they are in violation of the law because they're moving outside of their authority. 
Or another example would be a husband hitting his wife. They're married. You know, the husband has a certain authority in his family, but he does not have the authority to hit his wife and beat his wife. Never. Never does he have that authority. That's abuse. We even see that in geopolitics today. Why was the invasion of Ukraine such a problem? Because Putin was exercising power without the authority. And what he's tried to do is to justify it or show that he has an authority that he didn't really have. For example, if you watch the interview with Tucker Carlson a week or so ago, he spent 30 minutes trying to give himself authority for what he did in Ukraine. But it's authority that he doesn't have. And that's happening a lot in our society. It's not just there. It's authority and power. Uh, using Exercising power outside of legitimate authority is always abuse. And using power to remove or resist legitimate authority is always sin. It's a sin of rebellion, which is like witchcraft. So anytime you use power to try to resist or remove legitimate authority without authority, you've engaged in rebellion. <clears throat> For example, just in the last week or so, we had that protest outside the MP's house. What were they doing? It's people protesting at his home trying to use power to defy his authority so that hopefully he doesn't continue to run. And I think maybe he has decided not to run, or at least several have decided not to run because they feel like it's no longer safe to be an MP. That is a sign that somebody is trying to use power illegitimately. And that's always rebellion. That's always wrong, wicked. And so we see this power and authority dynamic all around us in the world. You can look at almost every situation, even globally, but in this power-authority dynamic. For example, China and Taiwan. You can look at it in the sense of, of Israel and Hamas. You can look at it in the sense of the, the elections that are going to happen this year. If you take this power and the authority dynamic, you can analyze so many things that are happening, and you can also discern what's right and wrong pretty quickly. And that operates on every single lever, uh, level. Uh, so, for example, I have the power to pick up every child in this, in this room, probably not all together, but uh, with, with many of them at least one by one, but I would not do that because I don't necessarily have the authority to do so. But now there's some parents who have told me, well, Rod, you know, if you see my child misbehave, then gently correct them. And so they've given me that authority. And so then I can exercise that power legitimately. And that happens all around. And it happens in the church too. You know, so if somebody came in and they said, hey, I'm an apostle, I'd say, hey, so what? Because unless I had recognized somebody as an apostle 
And unless the elders of the church say, okay, we acknowledge you as an apostle and we will allow you to speak into the life of our church, but hey, by the way, we're still in, the, in authority here. Unless that happens, an apostle, I don't care if the apostle Paul walked in today, he would have no authority in this building. Even though he might exercise all kinds of power, he would have no authority. So power and authority, really, really important to understand. And to understand now our spiritual authority as the church, as the ecclesia, we also need to understand God's design for all authority. So God has designed this this way. It's, God has done this on purpose. And biblically, you can see that God has designed four kinds of authority. There are four kinds of biblical authority. The first we know quite well, it's called civil authority. This is the authority of civil organizations and governments. Civil authority uh, operates according to laws and rules. In a nation like this, it operates according to votes. Parliament has a certain responsibility, but they still have to vote, and, and on and on. We understand civil authority. It's civil authority that will give us a ticket if we go too fast or we park in the wrong place. You know, it's civil authority that draws the lines on the road that we're supposed to drive between, and so on and so forth. That's civil authority. Uh, and then there is familial authority. This is the authority within families. And this authority, in some, uh, in some respects, is a legal authority. Parents have a legal responsibility for their children. But there's also some cultural dynamics here. And there's also some biblical dynamics. So the Bible, which is the highest authority for us, the Bible says that parents should do certain things. And then we might have traditions that say, well, we'll do it this way. You know, for example, here at Chelsea and City Temple, uh, we have our children in the service so they can learn alongside of us. Now, there could be other traditions that are equally legitimate. It just depends on what each church decides is the right thing for them and which families, what the families want. So there's familial authority. Husbands and wives are connected together, and so they have authority in one another's life. So a husband can pray for his wife with authority. A wife can pray for her husband with authority. You can pray for your children with authority. Parents, you can take authority and ban demonic spirits from attacking your children. That's your authority. And you can exercise that in their lives. And then there's a third kind of authority, which I call personal authority. That's the authority that you have over your own life. Now, this authority is self-control, not self-centeredness. You know, it's the authority we talk about when we talk about boundaries. But today, a lot of people don't understand boundaries, and so that's really abused. And a lot of people will use the boundary talk to abuse others or try to limit others. But basically, this personal authority is the, the freedom of choice that you have. It's you choose who you will marry unless you're in a family system where your family helps you on those decisions. Uh, but this personal authority is always exercised in relationship with other people, showing respect 
and honor toward other people. Somebody couldn't walk in here and start singing out, uh, the hills are alive with the sound of music. You know, well, they could. They could do that just like I did, but they wouldn't have authority to do it. You know, even though personally they could sing that in their bathroom until they're blue in the face, when they step into here, they have, their personal authority comes under a greater authority. And consequently, they have to limit their exercise of their authority over their own lives. And if they don't, can't live with that, then they just need to walk out and exercise that authority over their own lives. And then the fourth kind is what we call spiritual authority. And spiritual authority for us, it's the highest form of authority in the Bible. Spiritual authority is the highest form of authority in the Bible. And this is the authority that we have in the spiritual realms, what's called the heavenly places or the heavenlies, the spiritual realm around us. We can't see, but is very real. We have authority in this spiritual realm that's manifested in the physical. This is what Jesus was referring to as the keys of the kingdom. And this is the authority that we have as the church, the bride of Christ, the ecclesia, and the people of God together. We have this spiritual authority. Uh, it's important to understand, all four kinds of authority come from God. All of them. As God said in Romans 13, 1, Paul, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, all four kinds of authority must work within the boundaries and rules God has designed according to the Bible. They all have to work within those boundaries and rules. For example, the government cannot tell me what I'm going to preach. It might try, but God has said that the government is subordinate to spiritual authority. And so the government does not have authority over what I preach. So there's limits to the government's authority. And again, the government can act in power outside its authority but that becomes abuse. I mean, you may have heard the, the story here recently of uh, 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 a, a police community support officer that was correcting a young woman uh, out on Oxford Street and said, you can't sing Christian songs here. She said, yes, I can. And she could. And the woman was wrong because there's limits to that authority. Once we're married, the two become one flesh is another example. That means now I have certain limits on my personal authority, my, my personal authority that is boundaried by my marriage to my wife. So I'm not free to sleep around. I'm not free to go out to dinner with whomever I want. We were having this conversation this week about chocolates. And uh, she said, Rod, you know, uh, it is never appropriate for you to buy another woman chocolate. 
And I said, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I wasn't talking about buying anybody chocolate. So don't any of you other ladies here get any ideas. You know, it's just, it's just how this things work. Okay. So it all authority, it's from God and it has to work according to the boundaries and rules that God has put forward. And if you go outside those boundaries and rules, not only are you violating God's will, but you are also opening yourself up to the authority of the demonic. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous for you, and it's dangerous for your families. Another dynamic about biblical authority, all authority is relational. It's all relational. You have no authority where you have no legitimate relationship. Oh, for example, if uh, Emmanuel Macron, he came over to parliament tomorrow and he said, I'm going to take over this parliament, everybody would laugh, right? Because he doesn't have the relationship with the United Kingdom that he has with France. So he has no authority in the United Kingdom other than the respect that we'll show him for being president of France. You see how that works. Or parents. You know, if, if the parents, you know, uh, uh, one set of parents doesn't have the authority over another set of parents' children. It doesn't work that way. Also, if a father abandons his children so that he no longer has relationship, he should not expect simply to walk into his children's lives and say, hey, I'm your dad now. You have to do what I tell you to. This happens a lot in blended families, you know, where there's a, ch a child from another relationship in a blended family. You know, if the, the father brings a child from his first marriage into a second marriage, to a second family, the wife doesn't have the same kind of authority over that child as the father does. And they need to be very clear about the limits of that authority, even within the context of that marriage. Otherwise, they will cause alienation and strife within the family. You see how this works? It's so important to understand this. It's so important because Jesus has received all authority in heaven and on earth. All belongs to Jesus. That's what he said there in Matthew 28. He said, and Jesus came and said to them, it's after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means he has civil authority. He has family authority. He has personal authority. And he has spiritual authority, with spiritual authority being the highest. That all authority belongs to Jesus. All of it. And that's good news, too. Because when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you come out from under the authority of the devil and you come into the authority of Jesus Christ. And unlike the devil or any other human authority, Jesus wants to exercise his authority for your well-being. And he does. So that's why this is good news. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciple of all nations. 
So Jesus has received all authority in heaven and on earth and all authorities in heaven and on earth, including demonic authorities, are subject to the authority of Jesus. And Jesus has chosen to share that authority with his bride. That's us, the bride of Christ, the ecclesia, the church gathered together. He's chosen to share that authority with us so that we go forth corporately and individually in the authority of Jesus. He's given us a great commission to go therefore and make disciples, but he's given us the authority to fulfill it. And then on the day of Pentecost, when he sent the Holy Spirit, he also gave us the power to fulfill it as well. You see that? Hopefully you're starting to see why it's so important to get this. So as the bride of Christ, we advance the kingdom of God and fulfill Jesus' commission on the basis of our spiritual authority. That's how we do it. We have this authority, and we do it on the basis of the authority that Jesus has given us, an authority which is bounded, which has rules that we have to live by, but an authority nonetheless that is very powerful. And by the way, this includes all genuine churches and all Christians. We all have it. We all have it. Even if we don't recognize it, we have it. But we have to understand our spiritual authority the authority which Jesus has given us. And how do we know it's spiritual authority? Because it's the keys of the kingdom. That's how we know it's spiritual authority. Our spiritual authority is not a civil authority. It's not a familial authority. It's not a personal authority, although we will work in all three of those realms. You know, for example, uh, Chelsea Community Church is a charity, a registered charity. That means that we have certain civil responsibilities as a charity that we have to fulfill. City Temple is a charitable company limited by guarantee. That means that we have civil responsibilities with the Charity Commission as well as Company's House that we have to fulfill. And in exchange for that, we get a certain degree of protection from the government and we're able to get things like insurance and the like that exists in the civil realm to protect us personally in case of worst case scenarios. Uh, or, or for example, churches, as a church, we will help you as parents disciple your children to the degree that you will allow us to. Even though parents are the primary disciple makers of their kids, we're happy to help you with that. Or another example is as the church, as elders, we might from time to time call you personally to repent. We might say, hey, this is what we've observed. This is wrong, and we think you should repent. Now, you don't have to listen to us. We can't force you to repent. And if I stood over you and said, okay, I'm going to stand here until you repent, and, and you say, oh, I, I repent, it's like you know a child that just stolen the cookie and you say, I'm going to stand here until you apologize. I'm sorry. Well, you know, you know, the child doesn't mean that. 
Uh, so you still have to exercise that personal authority, but we have the authority to say, hey, this is sin, and we have authority to call in consequences for that if we call it out. That's part of our spiritual authority. But spiritual authority is always based on relationships, 100%. Spiritual authority is based on relationships. First and foremost, it's based on our relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Our spiritual authority, individually and corporately, flows from that relationship with God in Jesus Christ. As Paul says, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus has given us authority, and so the level of authority that we have flows from that relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. If you have a passing acquaintance with Jesus, then you're not going to have a whole lot of authority. If you get to know Jesus fully and commit yourself to knowing him, then he will give you more authority. It flows out of that relationship you have, and then it flows into and from our relationships with other people and, and other groups. So I have authority here because you have said, Rod, you're, you're our minister. And I have a relationship, and now I have a 22-year relationship, a relationship of love and commitment and things. And so I have a whole lot more authority in this church and in City Temple and many other churches even than I would have if I just came last week because of the relationship. It's so important. Notice what Jesus said there in Luke. He said, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus, in his authority, would, did not place himself over us. He did not place himself under us. He did not place himself somewhere to the side. He placed himself right in the middle of us. And you only have authority when you are among the people who have given you that authority, when you have that kind of relationship. So our spiritual authority among other people and other groups even is relational. In every context, people must receive and consent to our spiritual authority. In every concept, content, they, they have to receive it and consent to it. Uh, so we cannot make demands or force someone to accept our authority or coerce someone to accept our authority. That is one of the reasons why that if someone tells me, hey, Rod, I'm going to leave the church, I say, we'll go with our blessing. Because I can't coerce somebody. I can't try to persuade somebody to stay. I don't want that because if you're going to be here, you're under our authority. And if you're not under our authority, then you should leave. Simple as that. Well, you can look around and stuff, but that, that's the way it works. So we cannot make demands of people. We cannot use force or coercion. People must welcome us in order for us to have authority with them. Now, when I came to the UK uh, 20, almost 23 years ago now, one of the things I insisted on doing, I insisted that the United Reformed Church denomination would officially approve me as a minister. Why? Because I needed to be received by them 
in order to have authority with them. The City Temple congregation had to vote for me. Why? Because I needed to be received by them in order to have authority with them. The elders could have just said, Rod, we're going to hire you as the minister, and I wouldn't have had to be with the URC or uh, had to go before the church. But I said, no, that's not the way it works. Because the only way I'll have authority is if you receive me there. Even leaders in the UK received me. I met Rosemary James, uh, gosh, uh, 21, 22 years ago. One of the things that she said early on, she came and she said, Rod, uh, as, as an English person, I welcome you to the United Kingdom. And I had many leaders do that. What were they doing? They were welcoming my authority. They were welcoming me in. We have no spiritual authority without authentic, genuine relationship. I can't go to another church and tell them what to do as a minister even though I'm ordained in the URC. My authority is bounded there. Elders in this church don't have authority in other churches unless the other church says, hey, we receive you and acknowledge that authority. You can be a member of a church. You can have your name on a membership role, but if you're not present in the church, if you're not giving, if you're not serving, if you're not learning, if you're not connecting with others, you have no authority in that church. Doesn't make any difference. I can't tell you the number of times I had people come to me over the years. Uh, like I remember one, one woman come and uh, she came for one Sunday. And she said, you know, I've been praying and I think God wants me to be your worship leader. And I said, wow, that's cool. And, uh, that sounds great. Well, come for three months, be engaged in the church, and then, uh, then for the, another three months, we'll let you sit in our worship team practices, and then after that, you can become a part of our, our team, and then we can see where it goes from there. She never came back. Because she wanted power without authority. And I will always resist people exercising power without authority. And the thing is, you know, sometimes we do it in very subtle ways. If you've heard the term passive-aggressive, you know, sometimes people can be passive-aggressive. Oh, well, if that's just the way you feel, then don't worry about it. You know, and you, you know what they're communicating. What are people doing? They're trying to exercise power to create guilt in order to get their way. And so we can't do that. We, we won't do that. Uh, some people... Oh, because, because it's relational, I'll speed it up here a little bit now. Because it's relational, our spiritual authority is the muscle of our love. The level of your spiritual authority determines how effective your love will be. Our effective spiritual authority depends on the depth and quality of our love, biblically defined. For example, our elders, they can say anything to me they want to, because they've demonstrated their love to me. And so they have a lot of authority in my life. Now this love, it's a zealous, self-giving commitment to others for their benefit. And so the level of your spiritual authority depends on the level of your love. And frankly, 
some people, a lot of people, have no spiritual authority because they do not have genuine, proven love. They don't have genuine, proven love for their family or for their church, for their workplace, for their city, or even for their nation. Uh, for example, I knew a, a pastor uh, lived in uh, Austria, had a church at Medin City Temple for a while, and he'd come in and he'd, he'd come to London and visit the church. He'd say, oh, London's a cesspool. It's a cesspool. Well, no wonder the church died eventually. Uh, London is a cesspool. And finally, I just got tired of it and said, you know, London might be a cesspool, but it's my cesspool. I knew another guy who was in our church for a lot of years who would go around and say, I hate London. I hate London. He was an American, you could tell. I hate London. You know, and finally I took him aside and said, you've got to stop saying that because you have no spiritual authority here if you hate here. Uh, I've seen people say, oh, I hate my job. I hate my job. Well, you've just taken away all your spiritual authority in your job. Why would you do that? That's silly. And there's some people that want to be on the membership role, but they don't want to be uh, part of the, the family. And if you're not part of the church, if you're not an active part of the body, you don't have any authority here, member or otherwise. Because it's relational, our spiritual authority will ebb and flow on the basis of our relationship, like my involvement with other churches from time to time, or how other leaders might speak into my life. It's going to ebb and flow, but it's always based on that relationship, on how we exercise our love. And we need to remember, biblically, love is a zealous, self-giving commitment to others for their benefit. And we need that kind of love to have a Jesus kind of spiritual authority. As the bride of Christ and as individuals within her, we need to build up the muscle of our love so that we might increase our spiritual authority all around us and the lives of people that we're connecting with every day and the life of the church, our city, the nation, even the world. If you have love for another nation, you can pray for that nation and you can pray for it with authority. And Jesus has delegated us authority so that we might continue his ministry, making disciples and setting captives free. We have the keys of the kingdom, but we exercise those keys with love. Well, at this point in time, you're very happy that I divided what was initially one sermon into two. We'd be here until tomorrow. Uh, sorry about that. But why was Jesus given all authority in heaven and on earth? Why does Jesus have all authority? Think about that in your mind. Our initial thought is that Jesus had authority because he's God, right? Fully God, fully human. But Jesus did not have authority of, as God. How do you know that? Because Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness and said, all these worlds have been given to me, so I'm going to give them to you. Say, that wouldn't have been a temptation if Satan didn't actually have the authority to do that. So Jesus didn't have the authority then. He only received all authority in heaven and on earth at the resurrection. 
even though he was fully God and fully human. Why did Jesus then receive all authority in heaven and on earth? Why did the Father at that time give it to him? It's because his relationship with the Father had been perfect, 100%. He always did what the Father was doing. He always did what the Father was doing. And his love was perfect. His love for us, for this world, was perfect as well because he died on the cross. He gave himself up as an act of love for you. He gave himself up as an act of love for me. He gave himself up as an act of love for his church, his bride. He willingly hung on the cross and allowed the nails to be driven in his hands, the nails in his feet, the crown of thorns on his head. He experienced death. He experienced suffering. He descended into hell. He did all of that for love for you. And his perfect love combined with his perfect relationship with the Father means that he was the one who could receive all authority in heaven and on earth. And we live in that authority as we love with that love as the bride of Christ to the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do love you and we honor you and we worship you. Thank you for this authority that you've given us in Christ Jesus as the bride, as the ecclesia. Lord, help us this week open our eyes to see how authority and power functions in our world. Open our eyes to see how you've designed our world, our relationships, our jobs, our city, our nation to function with authority and power. And help us, show us all the ways that we've undermined our love and help us increase our love. Increase our love for our family. Increase our love for our friends. Increase our love for our church. Increase our love for our workplace. Increase our love for our city and for our nation and for our world so that our authority might increase and your kingdom would come and your will would be done on this earth as it is in the heavenlies. We pray all this to the glory, praise, and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.